Thanks for checking out the weekly Harmony Church podcast. For more information and resources about Harmony Church or any of the Harmony events, check out the Harmony Church website or Harmony Church Facebook page today. So what I want to do in this session is combine uh, a couple of things. I want to merge Thursday night about being established in identity. I want to speak something about one of the identities that we carry as the Christian community. We'll get there in a moment. Uh, with how to handle the word of truth well. Okay, so we just spoke about how to read the Bible. And now I want to talk about how to or demonstrate how to handle the Scriptures. So, um, you know, when it comes to handling the Scriptures, the premise of my book is this. There's basically a three-step process. You have to answer three questions of the Scripture in order to handle it well. The first thing is, what does it say? Good place to start, all right? What does it say? And in order to get the answer for that, you have to read it. Easy, okay? What does it say? The next question is, what does it mean? How many of you know that in a relationship, it's one thing to hear what a person says, it's another thing to understand what they mean? Oh, come on, you've never had a spouse say, that's, I know that's what I said, that's not what I meant. Okay, so having, hearing what the Bible says is one thing, but understanding what the Bible means when it says that is another thing entirely. And that's where most of the battles for doctrine are won and lost and disagreed. Almost all of us agree on what the Bible said because we've all got the same book. We know what the Bible says. The debate and different uh, doctrinal understandings and theology comes from, no, 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 I know that's what it says, but what does it mean? Now, what does it mean? So that's the second question. What does it mean? And then the third question is, well, now that I know what it says and now that I know what it means, what does it matter? Who cares? What does it matter? How does what it means matter to me? How do I put it into practice, if at all? What implications does it have for me? I know Jesus said to Peter, get out and walk on the water. That's, that's what it meant. But who cares? What does that mean to me? No, no, sorry. What does that matter to me? Not what it means to me, because it means what it always means. It meant Peter walk on the water. That's what it means. But what does that fixed meaning matter to me? How does that matter? So that's kind of the process of handling the Bible well. So today, essentially in this session, I'm dealing with what something means. Okay, And rather than doing a whole teaching on how to do it, I kind of just want to example it. Okay, I kind of want to model it. And I gave you a hint about where we're going, but we're going to start in the, the Gospel of Luke. So if you can turn to Luke, we're going to look at Jesus speaking in chapter 20 at one of those stories that is not a feel-good story because we, as open students of the Scripture, know that we even read the bits that aren't comfortable because we don't allow our preferences to form prejudices. Okay, so we're going to read a peculiar, slightly uncomfortable parable of Jesus in all three Gospels, so it must be important. Uh, and here we go in Luke chapter 20, verse 9. Jesus, he went on to tell the people this parable. And if you read verse 1, the context is that Jesus is at the temple speaking to the priests and the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. He's at the temple. So the people he is talking to are first century Jewish Old Covenant community people. That's his audience. Okay, context is everything. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man 
planted a vineyard. He rented it to some farmers and then went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him up and sent him away empty-handed. So he sent another servant. That one they also beat up and treated shamefully and sent them, him away empty-handed. He then still sent the third and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, hang about, what am I going to do about this? I will send my son whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw this, the son, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and then give their vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, no, may this never be. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, then what's the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The one that they rejected has become the most important stone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. Verse 19. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the people. They knew he'd spoken this parable against them them and so they started to scheme we need to deal with this guy now when you read the bible particularly when you come across something that's a little bit uncomfortable you've got to ask questions most of the best learning that's ever come to me as i said is not through listening to preachers but it's been through reading the bible myself and asking questions so an obvious question to me when we read this passage is why did these Pharisees, Sadducees, teachers of the law take this personally? How did they know Jesus was talking about them? He didn't say he was talking about them, but they knew it. Was it just because they were narcissistic and they thought everything was about them? Were they paranoid? I mean, sometimes as pastors and preachers, we know what that's like. doesn't matter what you preach. There's someone there who's going, he's preaching that at me. The pastor's talking about me when he says that example. I know he's talking about me. No, they weren't egocentric. I don't think they were narcissistic. I don't think they were overly hypersensitive. No, I don't think that's the issue. What I see happening here, and this is what happens when you have a big picture view of the Bible. Why were these religious leaders in the first century Judaism why did they think that the vineyard picture was speaking about them, that they were the tenants, the ones who were called to look after the vineyard, God's vineyard? Why would they know that that was speaking about them and therefore the vineyard being God's people? Why did they know that? And they knew that. The answer to that question is, when you have a big picture view of the Bible, you understand that Jesus is that this picture of God's people being a vineyard, the people of Israel being God's vineyard, is all the way through the Old Testament. There is not much new 
in the New Testament. In the sense that a lot of the pictures, a lot of the motifs, it's a fancy word for a theme, a lot of the imagery, a lot of the metaphors that are used by the first century apostles, by Jesus, John the Baptizer, etc., they their reference point is everything else that was said in the Tanakh. Okay, the Tanakh's a term I just used to try to impress you. That's what the Hebrews call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. They just take the language of the Hebrew Bible that they've had for 1400 plus years. They take that and the old, and that's what the New Testament preachers do. They use that language and they revisit it. They reapply it. They reimagine it. They recapitulate it in the current context of what God was doing in their time. So when Jesus says an owner had a vineyard, a man owned a vineyard, they knew that he was talking about the community of Israel. Because over and over again in the scriptures, God had described his old covenant community as a vine or as a vineyard. It wasn't because Jesus was a wino. It wasn't because he was an avid viticulturalist. He just loved wineries. Okay, it wasn't because he was trying to uh, just reach an agrarian society, so he used farm language. Okay, now lazy preachers, we say that because that's all we know. But people understand the Bible. No, no, no. He was not just talking farm language because they were farmers. He was talking vineyard language because all the way through the Scriptures, God had called his people a vineyard. And so they knew that this was about them. And almost every picture of the church that Paul gives us in the New Testament was given to Israel first, okay? And almost everything that was spoken in the Old Testament has its beginnings in the writings of Moses. Moses wrote the book of Origins, first five books of the Bible, okay? The, uh, what's it called? The Torah or the Pentateuch in Greek because pent means five, okay? So the Pentateuch in Greek, he wrote that and then all the prophets that came after him borrowed his language, and so as with anything, when you see a picture in the New Testament, you go, wow, where does that come from? Why does Paul use the picture of a bride? You take a stand, step back, you look at the whole Bible and you realise oh, God used the picture of the bride to talk about his people all through history. And so you remember Chad's talk from last year where he got the Barbie dolls up on stage and he explained how God's bride, that theme goes all the way through the scripture. Okay, when you read the story, uh, when you see in the book of Acts how the Jewish people persecuted the Christians, the, or, or Jesus tells the parable of the prodigal son, the older brother persecuting the younger. Jesus didn't invent that. You stand back, you have a big picture view of the Bible, and you realise the motif of the older brother persecuting the younger brother begins all the way back with Cain and Abel. Cain persecutes Abel. Abraham's son. Isaac and Esau, the older persecutes the younger. The older persecutes the younger. The 11 brothers lock up the younger brother, Joseph. Okay, it's all the way through the Old Testament. So Jesus doesn't just pluck an idea out of his brain. He relates the story that they already know. This is why you understand the Bible. You take a big picture view to help your understanding. Okay, so you understand these themes and motifs go all the way through the Bible. So God's people are a picture of a vine or a vineyard and it goes all the way back to Moses. So let's look. So what you do is you get on your Bible program and you look up the first reference to vine or vineyard in the Scripture and you go to Moses. Let's turn to the very end of Deuteronomy and I want to read a really, really pertinent, and this became so obvious to me last year when I read through the Bible. 
Moses, um, if you want to understand the prophets, which are probably the most difficult books to read, come on. When's the last time you read Nahum? Some of you didn't even know Nahum existed, did you? You're going to be very embarrassed one day when you get to heaven. Someone comes up and says, hi, my name's Nahum. What do you think of my book? And you... I'm sorry, I didn't. Yeah, I'm, I'm Obadiah's cousin. All right, okay, <laughs> good one. Um, but what the prophets do, Moses is the lawgiver. So he sets the law and then all the prophets after him prosecute that law. So they borrow his language like a prosecuting attorney that comes before God's people and said, you're doing this wrong, this wrong, this wrong, this one, that wrong. They always use Moses' language. Moses penned the law. The subsequent prophets prosecute that law. So they borrow his language. But he was not just a lawgiver. Moses was also a prophet. He was Israel's first national prophet. And toward the end of his life, just before he dies, he gives one of the most powerful and one of the most miserable prophecies in the whole Bible. It is so depressing. And we're going to read it right now, okay? <laughs> Get some context as always. Deuteronomy 31. Deuteronomy 31. And I'm going to read verse 28 for some context. Assemble before me all the elders of your tribes and officials so I can speak these words in their hearing and call heaven and earth to testify against them. This is the people they have just spent 40 years in the desert. The promised land's right at their doorstep. And Moses says, before I die, I wanna speak to them. So gather them all together. I've got something to say before I cark it. Verse 29. For I know that after my death, you are sure to become utterly corrupt and turn from the way I've commanded you. In the days to come, some of your Bibles say in the last days or the latter days, disaster will fall upon you because you will do evil in the sight of the Lord and you will provoke Him to anger by what your hands have made. And Moses recited the words of this song from beginning to end in the hearing of the whole assembly of Israel. He's about to give them a doom and gloom prediction about their future. And it's so important that they remember it, he puts it to a song. Because we don't remember scriptures as easily as we remember songs. And so he gets a bunch of musos up there, gets out the PowerPoint and he starts singing a song to them that is prophesying about the disaster that is gonna come upon them as they disobey God in the future. Isn't that miserable? Moses writes, is credited with writing three songs, okay? Exodus 15, when they come out of the Red Sea, is a real happy song. Woo-hoo-hoo! Psalm 90, apparently, Moses wrote, and it's a real reflective type of song. He hides me in the shelter of his wings, all that type of thing. This one is his biggest song. It's quoted seven times in the New Testament, okay, over and over again. It is revisited by the prophets all the time. It's prophetic. So again, the prophets have this song, they've memorised it and the prophets revisit these words over and over again because when the prophets come, they don't just pop things out of their head, remember? They say, this is what Moses said would happen, this is what you're disobeying. So this song is really important. As I read through the Bible last year, as I said, I thought, wow, a lot is in these last chapters. Moses is prophesying before his death the future of this people. Let's read some of these depressing words. (laughs) He said this to the whole assembly of Israel. Interestingly enough, by the way, just a a fact to impress you, when the Hebrew Bible was put into Greek, 200 something BC, okay, we call that the 
uh, yep, Septuagint. I, I say Septuagint before, didn't I? I meant Pentateuch. Yeah, the Septuagint. The word there for assembly is the word ecclesia. Okay, so in other words, in the, when you're a first century Jew and you're reading this, it says he gathered the whole church before him. Again, <laughs> you read the New Testament, come across the word church, it's not new. It's not a new word. They already had that in their Greek Bibles when God's assembly here, before uh, um, Moses dies, is called the church, the assembly. Nothing's new, okay? Listen, O heavens, and I will speak. Hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. Let my teaching fall like rain and my words descend like dew, like showers on new grass, like abundant rain on tender plants. Everyone say plants. Some of your translations may say on tender plants. <laughs> Depends where you're from, okay? Tender plants. Of, in each of Moses' songs, he calls God's people plants. Exodus 15, Psalm 90, and this one, he calls God's people's plants. The idea of us being a planting of the Lord or anything to do with tree life, okay, Moses came up with that. God's people are plants. It's a, it's a motif, it's a theme, okay, that Moses begins. Tender plants. I'll proclaim the name of the Lord. I praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock. His works are perfect. All His ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is He. Profound that He is gathering together the church and He says, God is the... When Jesus in Matthew says, on this rock I will build my... He was just saying what Moses said. Moses here in Jeremy gathers the assembly and says, He is our rock. Verse 5, here comes the depressing stuff. They have acted corruptly toward him, prophesying their future. To their shame, they are no longer his children, but they are a warped and crooked generation. Warped and crooked generation. Jesus quotes that, talking about the people of his day. And who else quotes it on the day of Pentecost? Peter, when he gets up and says, save yourselves from this warped and crooked generation. It's a quote from Moses. He's saying what Moses prophesied back in Deuteronomy is taking place in our day, here the day of Pentecost. What is surrounding us is a warped and crooked generation. What Moses prophesied there is applicable to us today in the first century. He's quoting the scripture. As you keep reading, the identity of God, bring, Chad, bring identity into this, okay? God's identity comes out. It's the first time we see God referred to as Father. In this song, he calls God Father. He calls them his children. He calls um, God an eagle, okay, who, who hovers over his kids. It's in, so he, he has that word there. It's the same word hover that's found at the start of Moses when he said the spirit hovered over the waters. Okay, God is hovering over his people. That identity comes out. He speaks of how generous God will be to them, providing them with fruit and bread and milk and honey and meat and olive oil, etc., etc. God's going to be so good for you. And yet, this is what you're going to do in the future. Verse 15. Jeshurun, which is a nickname for Israel, grew fat and kicked. Filled with food, he became heavy and sleek and he abandoned the God who made him. He rejected the rock, his saviour. 
in what the day is coming, I'm prophesying your future, where you will reject the rock, your Saviour. What is the Hebrew word for Saviour? They shall call Him Jesus, Yeshua, because He will save. Moses here, 1400 years BC, says they will reject the rock, Yeshua. They will reject the rock, Jesus. That's why he's a pretty good prophet. He knew 1400 years before the first, they will reject the rock, Yeshua. It's right there. Far, wow. So the whole Bible works together. Verse 18, this, this is depressing, but it'll get better. All right, build up with me because this isn't written to you. You're not there. You're not part of the old covenant community. Now, it's good for you to know this. You will appreciate the Bible and it fits a theme that goes all the way through the Scriptures that comes to us later. I'm getting there. We're going to read this first to get the context, okay? Verse 18, just more verses out of this song. You deserted the rock who fathered you, forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw this and rejected them because He was angered by His sons and daughters. I'll hide my face from them, He said, and see what their end will be because they are a perverse generation, children who are unfaithful. They made me jealous by that which is no God and angered me with their worthless idols. So I will make them envious by those who are not a people and them angry by a nation that has no understanding. How many of you think that sounds familiar? Romans chapter 10, Paul writing, first century Jewish community and says, listen, God's got to make them jealous by those who are not His people but are becoming His people. So there's another quote in the New Testament. This finds fulfilment in the first Century. Verse 22, for a fire has been kindled by my wrath that burns to the realm of death. It will devour the land and its harvest and set afire the foundations of the mountains. Ooh, doesn't this sound like good prophecy? Verse 28, they are a nation without sense. There is no discernment in them. If only they were wise and would understand and discern what their end would be. How could one man chase a thousand or two put 10,000 to flight unless their rock had sold them, unless their Lord had given them up? So this is a prophecy about foreign enemies coming in and one man scattering a thousand of God's people. Sometimes we read that and we think, oh yeah, we can scatter a thousand. No, he's saying, how can one man come and scatter a thousand of my people? Well, it's easy because I turned myself against my people. I'd sold them. I allowed foreigners to, to uh, basically destroy them. Oh, Chad, please get to the New Testament. This is so depressing. This is what much of the Old Testament's like. This is why you don't read the prophets, because it's depressing. But it's not written to you. For their rock, these people that deserted me, okay, these people that deserted me gave, got themselves a foreign rock, a, a little R rock. Their rock is not our rock, as even our enemies know. Their vine comes from the vine of Sodom and from the fields of Gomorrah, and so their grapes are filled with poison. So God right here, is, Moses right here is saying, as my people that are in covenant with me, they're going to abandon God. They're no longer going to be my children. They're going to run away, desert the rock that saved them, worship little rocks, little foreign rocks, and they are going to be cut from the same cloth as Sodom. Their vine, the type of vine that they are, is as if they were planted like Sodom and that's the fruit they are now bearing. 
Isn't that depressing? And that, that this, this is the start of, this is Moses' great song he wants to leave them with before they go into the promised land. Woo-hoo. How depressing. But this is fully in keeping with the covenant that God gave them at Sinai. If you obey, then you'll be blessed. But if you disobey, which you will, all this is going to happen to you. And one day you'll become a vine. It's as if you were plant, it's as if you will you bear the fruit of Sodom and Gomorrah itself because you will be a vine that as if, as if it was grafted from them with unholy roots, not something that I planted at all or I imagined at all. And that ends the talk today. So let's... Uh, and so as you read through the Old Testament, that's why many of the prophets are depressing because it's speaking to a group of people that are disobeying God. And according to the prophet who penned these words, the lawgiver Moses himself, these are the disasters that are going to come against you. All right? What's the point, Chad? Get to the point, preacher. The point is when Jesus comes to the first century Jewish people community and he says, there's a vineyard. God's people are like a vineyard. They knew right back from Moses that that was a picture that spoke about them. We are God's vineyard. And this picture that Moses introduces here goes all the way through to prophets. Psalm 80 verse 8 says, You transplanted a vine from Egypt. You you drove out the nations and planted it. Okay, what were... You, Israel, what were you when you were in Egypt? You're a vine. And I transplanted you, plucked you out of Egypt. I drove out other nations. I cleared the ground and I planted you as a vine in the promised land. Jeremiah 2 says this, I had planted you like a choice vine of sound and reliable stock and I used an Oh, let me, let me read it from the screen. I planted you like a, a choice vine, sand and reliable stock. How did then you turn against me into a corrupt wild vine? Can you see how he's saying? You're becoming like the vine of Sodom. I planted you like an awesome vine with awesome fruit. And now there's corruption that takes place in you. Next verse. Although you wash yourself with soap and use an abundance of powder for cleansing, the stain of your guilt is still before me, says the Lord. You are a vine that needs cleansing. So when you come to the New Testament, and if you just happen to read a verse where someone speaks about a vine and my words have cleaned you, then you remember, ah, that person's just quoting Jeremiah there. You can read the whole chapter of Isaiah 5. It's called the Song of the Vineyard. The whole chapter of Ezekiel 15 is entirely dedicated to talking about God's people being a vineyard. In fact, it is there in Isaiah 5 where he says, I planted a vine. It grew to become a vineyard. I put a watchtower there. I I set out the ground and I asked people to look after it for me. That is not Jesus coming up with that parable, he is visiting the parable spoken by Isaiah. That is why we need a big picture view of the Bible because when we read a parable of Jesus and we say, but what does it mean? We will not understand what it means unless we understand the Bible from a big picture perspective and understand that the vineyard motif is something that happens from beginning to end. Wow. 
Okay, so that's why those Pharisees and Sadducees could take that personally. They knew he was talking about Israel there and then. Amen. So what does this have to do with us? We've had a big picture view. Now I want to zoom in and show you how when you read a passage of Scripture, sometimes you need to zoom out to understand it, and sometimes you need to zoom in. John 15. You still with me? I appreciate your thinking. And that's good. John 15, and you'll be familiar with this, but I'll read the first five verses. Jesus speaking, it's in red, that's how we know that. It says, I am the true vine. Come on, everyone say vine. I am the true vine. Ding! What does that mean? Take a step back. Okay, I'll get that picture. All right, Jesus is a rabbi. Okay, he, he, he's, he's referencing Old Testament. Okay, I've got that picture in my mind. I am the true vine. And my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. So remain in me and I'll remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Now listen, I am the vine and you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I am him, he'll bear much fruit because apart from me, you can do nothing. Big picture. Now let's have a look at the smaller details. Jesus says, I am the true vine. Let's have a picture of a vine um, up on the screen. Let's have a look. Established in Christ. So the title message. Go to the next one. Okay. I'm the true vine. Here's a picture of a vine. It's a cartoon to, uh, to help you see it a bit clearer. A vine has three basic elements. It has a root system under the ground. Okay. It has a trunk. It has branches with leaves and fruit and cordons and canes and trendles and all that type of stuff. The believers we know in this picture are the branches. But Jesus says, who is the vine? I am the vine. Jesus doesn't say, I am the roots. He doesn't say, I am the trunk. He says, I am the vine. I'm the whole thing. Because I've always read that. thought, well, if I'm the branch, that means I'm plugged into Jesus. So he's the, he's the stem. And the, but he doesn't say, I'm the stem and you're the branches. He says, I'm the vine. So what this is, because we know the Old Testament now, we've had a big picture. We know that the vine is a collective metaphor. It represents the whole community. The one body of Christ, just like the body of Christ is a collective metaphor, the whole body is the body of Christ. We are its members. So as you look at that, you go, it's a collective metaphor. I am the vine. 
and you are so intricately connected with me that you don't know where I start and you finish. Because this is a composite picture of my collective body. Like the body of Christ has many members. Where does Christ start and finish? Well, he's the head, but he's not because he's the body, the body of Christ. He's the whole thing, actually. So in the same way, I am the vine. So that kind of gives us a bit of a clue there. Okay, but he doesn't just say, I am the vine. He says, I am the true vine. Now, for him to say that means he's drawing a contrast between another vine. So it's not just a collective metaphor. It's a contrasting one. I am the true vine. Not I'm the vine. I am the true vine, which means if there's a true vine, there's another vine that's something else. Okay. This word for true is used all the way through the New Testament. This is where we're zooming in. Okay, so you get your Bible program and you click on the word true. Okay, there's a hyperlinks for you. And you go, where else is this word used in the New Testament? And this is what you find. Next slide. In Luke 16, verse 11. If you are not faithful with worldly wealth, who can entrust you with true riches? John 4, 23, don't worship on this mountain or that mountain or Jerusalem for now is the time where true worshippers will worship in spirit and truth. John 6, 23, Moses gave you bread, but my father gives you true bread from heaven. He says, I'm the bread of life. Hebrews 8, 9, the man-made tabernacle is a copy of the true one in heaven. So this word true is used to contrast things that are shadow with something that is substance. Something that is a type with something that is an anti-type. Something that is temporary with something that is eternal. Something that is earthly with something that is heavenly. Something that is old covenant with something that is new. And so when Jesus comes along, He doesn't say, I'm the vine. He says, I'm the true vine. He is contrasting that what He is doing is that it is something heavenly. It is something new compared to that which is old. It is something eternal compared to that which was only ever going to be temporal. It is something that is substance of that which the previous vine was simply a shadow. I am the true vine. Ah, oh, now I've got a better idea of what that means. My big picture view, I'm now zooming in and realising that's why he used the word true. Because if I was to ask most of you before we read that scripture to quote John 15, and if I was to say, Jesus said, I am the, most of you would just say vine. But he didn't say I'm the vine. He said, I'm the true vine. So he's trying to communicate a contrast to his people. What's the point? Throughout history, the old covenant Israel has been God's vine. A collective picture uh, that was plucked out of Egypt. A nation under a law planted into a new land. This, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all these guys called the old covenant community, God's vine. Jesus comes along and he says, there's a new vine in town. There is a new eternal community in town. In the first Exodus, their goal was to worship at a physical mountain. Jesus comes and he says, now I'm calling you to worship at the true mountain. In the first Exodus, they ate the bread of Moses. In this exodus, they eat the true bread from heaven. In the first exodus, the priest served in a physical tabernacle. Jesus comes and says there is a true tabernacle from heaven. In the first exodus, God's people were collectively called the vine. Jesus comes along and says, I am the true 
vine. He's making a contrast. He's making a distinction. And in that vine, verse 2 tells us that the gardener is God. The gardener, God is the gardener. I love the picture of God as a gardener. It's a beautiful, it's, it's one of the first pictures we actually have of God in the whole Bible. In the beginning, God created. And then after he created, he cultivated. He looked after it. He, he formed something and then he filled it. Okay, that's what gardeners do. You form a structure, something that's vo- void and without substance. Okay, you, fo- you form something and then you fill it with substance. That's what the Creator does. I love the fact that right at the end of the Bible, in Revelation, it talks about a garden. And God's there in the garden. I love the fact that when Jesus raised from the dead and the women saw him, they thought he was the gardener. And it's my imagination. You don't have to buy into this. But I just wonder whether Jesus raised from the dead and the first thing he did was got down on his knees and started picking up plants and had, his, has, had dirt between his fingernails. Is that why the women thought he was a gardener? Because he was carrying little saplings in his hand? I don't know, but I kind of like to think that. Jesus is a gardener. And he says, this new vineyard has a gardener who is my father. Well, what does this father do? Verse 2 says he cuts off. Let's not go to the slide yet. Oh, yeah. Okay, keep this. That's good. My father is the gardener. And it says he cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit. And he prunes the branches that do, so they'll produce even more. He cuts off the branches in me. Now, we have just read that the branches are, the branches are believers, yeah, that are, that are so connected with Jesus. I mean, here's this new picture of the new vine and there are branches and those branches are believers. And he says, but when those branches do not bear fruit, he cuts them off. Now, what happens when a branch is cut off? It dies and it's no good for anything than being burned up and thrown into the fire. It's useless. Now, How many of you think this is worth looking at a bit closer? This makes sense when you understand the big picture view of the Bible because in the past, the prophets had always said similar stuff. They'd always said, you disobey, you're fruitless, you produce bad fruit, God's going to cut you and burn you. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, it's all there. They 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 all just repeat Moses' language. You've become basically like Sodom. You're not my people, but you're cut out. I'm going to cut you off. So this makes sense from an all-Bible perspective, it is consistent with the whole Bible picture of the vine. But you and I read this knowing that this is talking about the new covenant community and everything else we know in the scriptures about the new covenant community doesn't seem to communicate this. This matters now. It's personal. When we were reading all the scriptures about Moses, as depressing as it sounds, we realised, it's okay, that's not us. <laughs> it's not us. Old covenant. I've read Chad's book. I get that. That's not us. Okay, fine. Now, New Testament scriptures talking about the new covenant community. Well, here's one, and it says you're going to be cut off if you don't bear fruit. Now, that's going to put some fear into you. How much fruit do you need to bear or not need to bear until you're cut off? When are you going to be cut off? The Father Himself is going to cut you off. And when you get cut off, you're useless and worthless and going to be thrown into the fire. Now, I'm grafted into Christ. I'm part of His body. I don't know where He starts and I finish. 
But if I'm not fruitful enough, I'm cut off. How long do you have to go before not bearing fruit? One year, two, the whole picture of three years, water it, fertiliser. After four years of not being a fruitful enough Christian, God will cut you out. This is something worth looking at, isn't it? So this is what you do. When you come across a patches of Scripture that doesn't quite adds up to what you know of other things, it seems a bit inconsistent, it seems a bit strange, it doesn't sit well with you, what do you do? You read over it and get to something good. Okay. <laughs> no, no, no. Okay, so we have a close look. We've had a big picture look. Now we zoom in and we go, okay, cut off. I'm going to get out my Bible program. I'm going to click on the word cut off and I'm going to see what that means. And guess what? The word there that this translation calls cut off has different meanings. And it can mean different things. And this is true in Greek, it's true in Hebrew, it's true in any language. If I talk about tr a trunk, okay, if I'm talking about animals, then the trunk is a elephant in that context. If I'm talking about a car, go put your suitcase in the trunk, you don't go outside and look for an elephant to give your suitcase to. <laughs> okay, you know, you know, the context demands that there's a, the same word has a different meaning. So in the context of the old covenant, that, a word that says cut off, I can understand that. But what if this same word had a different meaning? What if this translation's not the best? Is there room to interpret that differently in the English? And the answer is yes. You click on that word and this is what you find. The word is, next slide, the word is arrow. I don't know how to say it, so let's just say arrow. And it may mean to remove, put away, take away. Or it may mean to lift, to bear, to carry, to pick up, to raise up, to hoist up. Now, hang on about, that's two very different meanings. It can mean to cut away or it can mean to lift up. Here's some Bible examples. Mark 2, verse 3 and 11. Some men came bringing to him a paralysed man carried by four of them. I say to you, after he heals the man, pick up your mat and go home. It's the same word. These men weren't, didn't cut off their friend. Jesus didn't say to him, listen, see that mat there? Cut it off and cast it away. No, they, the man was carried up. He said, lift up your mat. Luke 9, 17. Afterward, after Jesus feeds the 5,000, the disciples picked up 12 baskets of fruit. They didn't cut off those baskets. They picked them up off the dirt. In Acts 20, verse 9, a guy called Eutychus was sound asleep, fell to the ground from the third story, and he was cut off. No, same word, but the context demands a different English rendering. They didn't cut him off. They picked him up. And so we have an option here. Not us really, but English translators have an option. Do we read Jesus' words as saying, if you're fruitless, I'll cut you off? Well, yes, that makes sense if, you're, if you have an Old Covenant Testament understanding. That is consistent with the whole Bible so far. But what if that same word, did Jesus mean that or is it more consistent in the English? And I'm not changing the Bible here. I'm not changing the Bible. The Greek word is arrow. I'm not changing that. We're not changing that. But that word can have a different meaning. 
Is it more consistent with New Testament understanding to say, no, 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 what Jesus meant when he said, Aero? What I know, we know that's what he said, but what he meant was lift up. Because I come from the place, like we've got the best football code in the world, we also have the best wine in the world where I live in McLaren Vale. And I know in summer, you, you get out there when the sun's shining, that's when the, thing, the, the branches are graping. And if there is a branch on a vine that doesn't have fruit, there's a good reason for that. It's not getting enough sun. It's connected. It's part of the vine. But if it's just got leaves on it, if it's not fruiting, it's because the sun, it needs sun. So what does a good gardener do? Does he come out and see a vine that's just got leaves on it and go, I'll stuff you, cut you off? (laughs) Or does a good viticulturalist come along and say, hang on, every other branch around it is bearing fruit. It's not a problem with the branch. It's not a problem with the soil. It's not a problem with the stem. It's not a problem with the weather. This branch is not getting enough exposure to sunlight. So I'm not going to cut it off. I'm going to lift it up. I'm going to pick it up out of the dirt like they did with the 12 basketfuls. They lift it like they did with Eutychus. He was in the dirt. What did they do? They picked him up. What did those friends do with their friend? As they lowered him to Jesus, they picked him up and brought him to Jesus. What does a good gardener do when there's a branch that's not as fruitful as what it could be? He doesn't cut it off. He lifts it up, points it toward the sun, props it up, gives it the help it needs to bear the fruit that it can and that it should naturally be because it is vitally connected. And so some translations pick this up. This is why you need different Bibles, read different Bibles because there's no such thing as only one way to translate different words. There are many ways. Any translation work is complex and it involves editors making decisions. What could that mean? What could that mean? What's the best word there? Well, in the Passion Translation, this is what Brian Simmons does. Okay, verse two, this is how he puts it. Here it goes. The farmer who tends the vine is my father, He cares for the branches connected to me by lifting and propping up the fruitless branches and then pruning every one that bears fruit. Big picture view. Zoom in to discover the meaning. We are not changing Meaning that is not our job as students. Our job as students is to know, hang on, I know that's what the Bible says. It says arrow, but what does that mean? And you know what it means by looking, sometimes by standing back and having a big picture view, other times by zooming in and having a closer look. And as my understanding, and you don't have to buy this if you want. I know there's a bit quiet in the room. Maybe this is a bit, I haven't quite heard this before. Could this possibly be true? This seems to be the most consistent and best English rendering, not changing the Bible. Okay, not changing it because we haven't changed the Greek. The Greek is arrow. But we're discovering what does that mean? Well, it's consistent with God's old covenant way to cut off but that doesn't seem to be consistent with the new covenant way. And as a teacher, I want to explain that. And as a preacher now, I want to tell you, God will not cut you out of Christ. If you've read that verse and you've been fearful, oh, 
how I'm not done much fruit this year. I've sinned a bit this year. I don't know whether God's going to come along and just suddenly chop me off and I won't even know that I'm unsaved. But God unsaved me because He cut me off because I wasn't fruitful. I want to assure you, God the Father if He sees you in a fruitless state, will do all that He can by His Spirit, by His Scriptures and by the community around you to prop you up and point you in the direction of the Son. Because it is the Son that you need in order to bear fruit. Amen. Three things. This is now how I, what does it say? What does it mean? How does it matter? Number one. If you are feeling unfruitful in your faith, God will not remove you from Christ. He wants to lift you into the light of His Son. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians, who had been a bunch of scumbags and ratbags and very sinful behaviour, not very fruitful okay, for the kingdom, not representing Jesus very well, what does he do? He writes to them all about their identity and he calls them sons, servants and saints. He calls them God's holy people. He finds them in the dirt, not being fruitful. They're still connected. They're still part of the body, but he lifts them up and say, listen, you need to look at the sun. You need to see who he is and you need to see who you are because of them. This is the way of apostolic leadership and New Testament teaching. When Jesus says to these guys, now listen, remain in me. There's all discussion and debate about whether someone can voluntarily remove themselves from Christ. Okay, I'm not going to go there. I certainly have a strong opinion on that. But whether someone can voluntarily remove themselves from Christ. But I tell you what, you, God himself will not remove you. He will not cut you out. He will lift you up. I don't have time to go into what I think that is about. So if you're struggling with Christian fruitfulness today, You've been a bit, this verse maybe has made you nervous as long as some others, as long as with others. Rob mentioned yesterday, Hebrews 10, trampling the, the sin, uh, trampling the blood of God underfoot because of sin, brought clarity to that. Ah, it's a specific sin. If this has been another scripture, I want to tell you today, be established in Christ. I am safe in the beloved. I am a part of that new, true, eternal vine. And God the Father is not going to come and cut me off if anything, he will lift me up when he sees I have need because not only does he know what's best for me, but he wants what's best for me. He wants me to be fruitful. He'll do all that he can to help you in that process. Point number two is we seek application of this. Those of you who have been fruitful in your Christian life, and all of us really to a degree have, we're probably more harsh on ourselves than what we often should be. Come on, let's admit it. God is committed to pruning you which means he's not done with you yet. And no matter how fruitful you've been for up till now, God is faithful, having begun a work in you, to see it to completion and greater levels of fruitfulness. And what pruning does, some people make a big deal about it, hurting or not hurting, who, who knows? I don't, that, that's, not, that's not really the point. Pruning is about cutting off last season's fruit to make way for a new season of fruit. And a new season, incidentally, of more fruit. There are times in our lives where we will have success in a certain area. And God will say, now listen, you've been fruitful in that space. but And that fruit's been awesome. It's fed people for years. But actually, I'm going to do something different. I just want to trim that back 
so that your fruit can grow in another space. Next season's fruit is going to be different. So there's been times in my life, we were just talking last night about leading praise and worship. For years, as a church planner, okay, we planted church from scratch, basically. I led worship every week for years. And it was probably five or seven years in, God brought someone else to lead in our worship context. And whilst I had been fruitful in worship leading, I was okay at it. God trimmed that off my life as someone else bore fruit in that area. And in trimming and pruning that off my life so I could bear fruit in another area, in another space. And there's things right now that I know I'm good at. There's stuff I'm good at. I'm good at certain things as a pastor. But oh, I'm so waiting for the season where God will trim certain things off me that I'm good at doing. I have been faithful and been fruitful in that area, but he'll trim those away so that I can produce fruit for a new season. And maybe some of you right now, you, you've been serving in a particular area for a while or you've been, and you just feel like, I wonder if my season, I just, just not have the grace like I, I used to. I feel like I'm doing something else. Walk slowly in the seasons of God. Know that it is He who is pruning you, okay? Because you're part of a community that is bearing fruit together. But it may just be that God is saying, listen, that's not the area I'm concentrating you in at a moment. We've got pastors in our church, retired pastors, who've preached for years and they will probably never ever preach again on a Sunday. And they know that. And they're not vying for a position to take the microphone because they tell me. They've to, oh, I've got retired pastors who tell me, I don't think I'll preach again. I just not, I've borne fruit in that area before, but now they're concentrating their energies into other spaces and other spheres. And that's okay. It's moving with the seasons of the divine gardener who prunes you so that you can be a new fruit for a new season. And then the third possible application of people today, those in Christ and you've been worried about being cut off, God will never cut you out of Christ. Those who've been fruitful and you're like, I feel like there's a change of season. Yeah, God is not finished with you yet, no matter how old you are. God is not finished with you yet. There are new seasons ahead of you. Third group of people are those who maybe you've never been a part of the vine of Christ. You're not part of the true vine. You, you don't know what it means to be connected with Jesus and have his blood flowing through your veins. If you do not know what it's like to be part of a, a community that is a collective community that is an eternal community, if you do not know what it's like to be intimately connected with Jesus, then today you can be part of that vine. You can come in. The Bible in other places, the book of Romans, talks about grafting branches in to God's community that were born outside but can be grafted and brought in and share in that life flow. And if you do not know Jesus here today, if you do not know what it means to have his life flowing through your life, then I'd love today for you to say, I want to be a part of knowing Jesus. I want to be a part of his community. Maybe at a conference like this, I'd say most of us are part of the true vine. But just in case there's someone here who you are not intimately connected with Jesus and you would like to be, while I'm looking at you, can you just show me your hand? Because I'd love to pray with you and I'd like to welcome you into the community as you invite Jesus to play a part of your life and say, I want to be connected with him. Because only being connected with him, the source of eternal life, that we have the guarantee of eternal life. He is the way, the truth and the life. And it's only by being connected with him that we can know God the Father and therefore have the guarantee of living forever. Is that you today? Do you not know Jesus and you'd like to? Because I'd love to pray for you.
Anyone? Three, two, one. Cool. I'm sure most of us here today are believers. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad you're connected to a true vine? The eternal, heavenly substance of eternity. I hope this has been helpful. And I hope that as you've discovered not only a preaching truth, that you can stand back and remember what I just did. Okay, you read a passage of scripture, look at the big picture. I need to have a big picture view of the Bible. Where is this first mentioned? This is where thematic study comes in. And what about zooming into the detail to make sure I understand this properly? Because a lot of preachers have set a really bad example. What, what does it say? What does it mean? And how does it matter? Most preachers, unfortunately, read the Bible, skip this bit, and go straight to, and this is what you should do. That's how scriptures get taken out of context. When we bypass the, well, hang on, I know what that's what the Bible says. But before you tell me what to do, I need to understand what that means. I hope that's been helpful to you. And I hope next year I can put a resource in your hand to help you with that. Bless you heaps. Let's go. It's one o'clock.